Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. Today we're going to talk about one of my favourite subjects, which is anxiety. Having specialised in treating anxiety for half my life now, it's one of the most important things that I do in my day-to-day work as a psychologist. So that's why I really wanted to invite someone who's been doing a lot of important work around soothing and softening anxiety and building confidence in her clients, Chloe Brotheridge. Chloe Brotheridge is a hypnotherapist, mentor and coach with the website karma-u.com and she's the host of a really popular podcast called The Karma You Podcast. She's the author of the books The Anxiety Solution and The Confidence Solution. And as you'll hear in this episode, she has also been doing some coaching and mentoring for me in my work as a psychologist. And that's really, really unlocked my practice. So you'll be hearing a bit more about that today, of how we can go from anxiety and overwhelm to confidence and having a calmer, more peaceful state of mind. We will touch upon why meditation is important and also why you don't actually really have the time to feel like shit, even if you say you don't have the time to meditate. We're going to talk about how we can soften and soothe and reframe and reboot limiting beliefs from your past so that you can build a future that is more aligned with your values, more aligned with the life you want to live. And finding an anxiety toolkit that can be helpful for you to take steps towards the life you want. We'll talk about how courage comes before confidence, that it's not about waiting until you feel confident enough to do scary things. It's doing them even though you are scared of them. Being brave enough to do hard things. So if you feel that you get hooked by imposter syndrome or have a strong inner critical voice telling you off for mistakes you make or telling you that you're not good enough and that leads you to feeling anxious in various situations, then this episode is for you. So let's dive in and welcome my guest, Chloe Brotheridge. Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast, Chloe. It's such an honour to have you here. And to be on the other side of the interviewing today after I've been on your lovely podcast as well. So welcome. And I'm really looking forward to having a chat about the two fantastic books you've written and all the work you do in helping women move from anxiety to confidence. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I loved having you as a guest on my podcast. And I listen to your podcast and really love it. So yeah, really excited to speak to you. And for those of you who don't know, which I've mentioned here and there before, that also Chloe is giving me some fantastic coaching in my own work. And that's obviously enabled me to step out and raise my own confidence in my work as a psychologist and when releasing my book and so on. So I'm very much in debt to, to Chloe and having her on the podcast feels really, really special. So I hope that this is going to be a nice, warm, nourishing conversation of just getting some ideas around how we can soften and soothe anxiety and build a stronger confidence. So before we dive into all that meaty stuff, just tell the listeners a bit more about you and the work you do and and why you've trained to be a hypnotherapist and things like that. Yeah, thank you. So I trained as a hypnotherapist over 10 years ago now, and I've done other qualifications since in things like coaching and NLP and various different things. And like many people, I got into this work because I was really struggling with anxiety, with low self-esteem. I was having panic attacks for much of my teens and early 20s. And I found ways over kind of a lot of trial and error and trying different things to, to start to feel better and start to manage my own anxiety. And I think it's quite natural for us as humans once we've you know found something that helps us, we want to share that and we want to be able to help other people. And so I was already working in a kind of helping profession. I was a nutritionist working in the NHS. I did a degree in nutrition, first of all. And I worked in the NHS for about five years and then discovered hypnotherapy. I think at the time I'd stumbled upon hypnotherapy recordings on YouTube or something. And at the time, I remember I was living with some housemates. I was working in the NHS in Essex and 
I was really struggling with social anxiety and just feeling so uncomfortable in my own skin, not being able to connect with these housemates that I had at the time, really lovely people that I, you know, wanted wanted to be friends with and hang out with. And the social anxiety was really blocking me from being able to relax and be myself and make friends with people that I was living with, essentially. And I discovered these recordings. I remember listening to them every day for a couple of weeks and starting to find myself feeling a bit better and feeling braver and chatting more to my housemates and feeling more comfortable in my own skin. And I was very sceptical in the beginning. I I sort of thought, oh, I'll try. I'll try this because it's a free thing. It's on the internet. And I didn't expect it to work. And I was really surprised that it did make a difference. And so it wasn't too long after that, that I I retrained as a hypnotherapist and yeah, started to help other people with anxiety and the sorts of things that I've been struggling with. So yeah, that was 10 years ago. It's been quite a journey since then. But um, yeah, I feel very lucky to get to, to do the work that I do. That's amazing to see that lived experience, you know, sharing that in such a vulnerable way of your own journey towards kind of finding a karma you, how that, I guess, liberated you to live a more meaningful life, to, you know, make friendships and connect with people socially. And what then happened with those uh, flatmates when you found a bit more bravery and I guess doing scary things like talking to them? Did that give a rewarding kind of response in your life when you were starting to open up after the hypnotherapy recordings? Yeah, it's interesting. I found this in a lot of areas of my life where in the, in the past I'd felt very blocked. I felt like there was something inside of me that was holding me back and kind of weighing me down. And it was through those hypnotherapy recordings that I started to feel unblocked. Things started to feel easier. I could see a way through. And that certainly wasn't the only thing I did. I did a lot of therapy. I've had many, many different therapists, different modalities, been on weird and wonderful retreats. And I tried a lot of things, read a lot of books, got into meditation in a big way. So it was a real, a real kind of toolkit that I developed that helped me. But that was the first thing that that really worked for me and really opened me up to this possibility that actually, you're not you're not going to be like this forever, you don't have to be stuck, there are things that you can do. Because I think, and I know a lot of people, certainly that I've worked with, have this this belief or this mindset that this is the way I am. I'm an anxious person. There's not much I can do about it. And I actually think it's part of the anxiety that tells us that that's the case. And this experience really proved to me that actually, you know what, things can change. It gave me a lot of hope and it, and it motivated me to want to try other things. So it's almost like the, the people you would see in your clinic would sometimes be quite fused with that identity, that belief, that narrative or script or whatever word you want to call it, that is... I am an anxious person, so therefore I will always be an anxious person rather than I'm having these anxiety-related behaviours or I'm doing these things like holding myself back from talking to people or not believing in myself enough to go for that promotion, etc. Can you give sort of some examples of, of other things you might commonly see women struggle with when you work with them? Yeah, so, and I know, again, a lot of therapists will say this, that you somehow attract people who have struggled with the same sort of things as you've you've struggled with. That just seems to happen automatically. So even before I'd specialised in helping people with anxiety, I found that a lot of people with anxiety were coming to me. So I saw a lot of people who are overthinkers, can't switch off. One thing I hear a lot is, I can't even relax on holiday, which is quite, quite a horrible thought really when you think about it. A lot of Hmm. perfectionism, a lot of the inner critic and people saying that they beat themselves up about everything and that the inner critic will hold them back from doing the things that they want to do in their life. I've worked with a lot of people with panic attacks and what other common things. Actually, a lot of people with public speaking anxiety. I think sometimes that can be a doorway in to getting help for anxiety because when it comes to public speaking, that may affect your work. It may stop you from moving up the ranks, for example. And they they might come and see me and realise, actually, this is this is a bigger issue of anxiety in lots of areas in my life that I didn't really realise. You know, I'm working on the, the public speaking, but actually I struggle to sleep at night or I'm always worrying or second guessing myself. So, yeah, that was another common one that I would I would help people with. And I think that's it's also much more of a socially acceptable kind of fear or, or um, block that people might say, oh, I'm not great at giving speeches. And uh, it might be that that's an easier way in for them to seek help. There might be less stigma or shame around it. I think that 
there's a common joke by um, Jerry Seinfeld where he does this thing around how uh, a fear of public speaking is more common than the fear of death. So you're actually better off being in the, in the, in the coffin than doing the, the doing the eulogy. Oh, um, so it's one of those things that it's just such a part of our human experience that everyone is just so scared of that. That if it's very commonly experienced, like, you know, say the imposter syndrome, which I think 70% of the population experience, and we kind of think, yes, it's not so much shame in, in seeking help and support for that kind of anxiety. Whereas, you know, does that show up a lot for the people you see as well, or the people who come to your courses, so the imposter syndrome? Absolutely. Yeah, I would say that was a, a massive one. And yeah, I think, I mean, part of, I think with imposter syndrome, realising how common it is, how common it is, particularly amongst successful women. And if people like Michelle Obama can experience imposter syndrome, then it's, it's okay for us to as well. And it's actually not a sign that you're not mm. good enough. It's actually a normal side effect for, for most of us of doing something new, going outside of our comfort zone and expanding into what's possible for us. We're going to have those doubts. We're going to have thoughts about whether we're ready, whether we're good enough. And yeah, I really try to reframe it for myself as much as for my clients that actually we can experience that and it's not a sign of us being deficient. It's actually a normal sign of growing and learning and expanding. Yeah, and I think acknowledging that, that it's not a sign and not not a correlation to how successful you actually are. If we're thinking of some of those big names that have openly talked about their imposter syndrome, then... Yes, they also have an inner critical voice questioning their worth and their value and that they've got enough knowledge or enough expertise. And if we think of Michelle Obama, who is one of the most powerful, strong women in the world, and she still has that kind of thought process hooking her, then it's just part of the human condition, I think. A lot of us have it. And so I often say that if 70% of the population have a, a syndrome, then is it really a syndrome or is it part of a being human? And it's just unfortunately a part of a side effect of our, the, the brains we have so I would like to hear more about that sense of that inner critical voice because something that you work with a lot in your work how can we soften that how can we suit that inner critical voice that stops us or like you said blocks us from stepping up in our life I would say yeah it really has an impact when I've you know spoken to people in my community this is almost the number one thing that they will struggle with, that, that the inner critic. And I think there's lots of things we can do. I think as a first step, listening to it, and I often get people to write down the sorts of things that their inner critic is saying, and it can be quite horrible to read that back and to see it in black and white, and we can almost get a bit of a shock that we would say those things to ourselves. And then acknowledging that it's there, I sometimes say to people, you know, can you just thank it for sharing? Can you just say to that that voice, that critical voice, thank you for sharing, acknowledging it. And one one thing I quite often do with people is get them to think about their inner critic as having a positive intention, having a intention to try to help them, to try to help them to get better, to try to help them to motivate them, and to almost have a dialogue with that part of themselves and try to get the inner critic to understand that what it's doing isn't actually helping. Because very often the intention is, and we think, think to ourselves, if I beat myself about, up about this, I will do better next time. It will motivate me. And very often people's experience is that that doesn't actually work. We can put ourselves off by beating ourselves up. It can mean that we don't try again. It can mean that we give up and we, you know, we beat ourselves up so much that we just kind of give up on whatever it is we're trying to do. So recognising that there may be some belief there that the inner critic is helping, but, but recognising that it really isn't. And then coming back to this thing, which is talked about so much, but I think we probably can't hear enough. You know, what would I say to a friend that was in that position? You know, what would I say to a friend who was having those critical thoughts about themselves? And can we speak to ourselves in that same way? Because that's, I think we all instinctively know that if we want to motivate someone, if we want to help them to do better, to encourage them, that's with kindness. That's with encouragement and support. It's not with pointing out all their flaws and telling them they'll never amount to anything. So how can we do that to ourselves? And it's such a practice and it's not something that we do once and it just sticks forever. I think it's a constant reminder um, to be kind to ourselves and to think about how do we speak to a friend to counteract the inner critic. Absolutely. I think that's one way of 
of understanding that we are more likely to reach our goals and more likely to walk in line with our values when we approach those things with kindness. And um, one of your friends who's been a previous guest on the show, Sharoui Saadi, has written that amazing book, The Kindness Method, um, showing how behavioral change is much more likely when we approach it with kindness. So there's so much research, so much written on this, and yet it is so hard to do. So I guess it's one of those things that we can think about an ongoing journey that starts with small, small steps. Can you think of any steps we can take to move from anxiety to confidence? Yeah, so I I think about it in terms of three phases. So the first phase is to recognise what what it is that's holding us back. Are there limiting beliefs? Are there things from the past that have stayed with us that are somehow um, causing us to beat ourselves up or have a very strong physical reaction of anxiety in certain situations. And that might be that you experienced bullying at school or the teacher made fun of you when you got up to read something in class or, you know, your parent was very critical. So if we can do some work to to start to heal or to reprogram or process some of the, the things that we've taken on board, some of the programming or the, the negative beliefs, then we can free ourselves up and we can create more space to allow ourselves to move forward. So that would be the first step. The second step, I think, is about thinking about where we want to get to. What is it that we really want? You know, I often notice this when talking to clients that they know exactly what they don't want. They know what they want to move away from, but they're not that clear on where they do want to get to, what kind of states they want to access, how they want to be thinking about themselves and getting really clear on that how you want to be and where you want to get to in your life can be really helpful because then we know where we're going, we know where we're heading. And then the final step is around actually putting that into practice and taking action. We can talk about, you know, confidence all day, we can visualise things, we can, you know, set goals, but if we're not taking action, nothing is going to change. And this is something that often I found people are reluctant to implement because it is scary and we have to do the thing that we're really afraid of. But it is through taking action that we learn to trust ourselves. And we learn that if we do the thing we're a bit scared to do, we don't die. I think that's what our nervous system is telling us when we're anxious. You know, if, you know, when I was really scared to go to a networking event, for example, I literally felt like I was going to die if I went. I felt like a, a animal going off to the slaughterhouse when I was getting the bus to my first networking event. But having gone through that experience and challenging myself and not dying and actually it turned out quite well then that starts to change my nervous system my nervous system starts to learn hang on you know maybe this isn't the life or death situation you you thought it was and I learned to trust myself through challenging myself step by step so taking action is such an important part of it and it doesn't mean that we have to throw ourselves in at the deep end thinking about a tiny bit of action that you can take, a tiny step that would be a bit of a challenge, but it's not going to put you into a complete panic mode that can help to um, teach you to trust yourself and to um, calm your nervous system down. And I think that's really powerful because otherwise this can become very much a an Instagram exercise. You know, you see a nice mantra on Instagram and then you think, yes, I should be kinder to myself or yes, I should do hard things or be brave. And all of these things that can serve as lovely affirmations, but unless we translate them into action and doing some of these hard things, we won't get a chance to almost like disconfirm some of the beliefs that we might have been holding for a very long time. Sometimes lay down at a point where we didn't really have the capacity for abstract thinking. You know, you kind of alluded to a lot of these things have been with us since childhood, some of these limiting beliefs. So when your clients take these small steps, it sounds like it's like a chipping away, like going to that first networking event. And then you can't just be done with that first network event. You have to then keep going and keep chipping away at this to have that new learning occurring. What kind of things do you see your clients or, you know, the people who take your courses, for instance, what kind of things do they tell you that they've been able to do? And In what way has this opened up their world? Yeah, so I've had quite a few people doing things like kind of starting businesses as as a kind of side effect of, feeling more confident or feeling more capable and 
taking you know small action not knowing that they don't need to do things perfectly but just getting started and, and taking a small step forward I've had a couple of people tell me that they've this is before the pandemic uh, gone gone on holiday on their own or taken a trip on their own something that they wouldn't have had the confidence to do in the past or maybe they didn't have anyone to go with and they really you know craved going to I think someone went to San Francisco on their own and um, you know just feeling as though I think this is one of the things that happens when we when we start to feel more confident, our world expands and what is available to us expands and we, and we feel like we can do more. So yeah, that's, that's what happened for her. She felt like she could do more in her life and, and things seemed possible. And so her world expanded and then she could do more of the things that she wanted to do. But I think that, I think it comes down to that. It often, from what I hear from people, it is about doing the things that you want to do that anxiety or confidence has held you back from doing whether that's because you're doubting yourself or because you've got some kind of social anxiety. You know, when we feel more confident, we can we can do those things, whether it's going to a dance class or um, speaking on a, a Zoom meeting in front of your colleagues or going travelling on your own. Um, yeah, the world opens up. So it's a, a liberation of sorts. So people have more rewarding experiences and there's an openness that I can do things. I have an opportunity um, rather than being blocked and having closed doors. I'm wondering, because we're talking about confidence here, that when you feel confident, the world opens up and, you know, you have, have these possibilities. What comes first? You know, should, we, should people wait to do things to feel more confident? Or is it that by doing these things, they feel more confident? How do, how do we think of bravery fitting in with this? Yeah, well, when I first, well, when I used to think about bravery, well, I used to tell myself I'm not brave because I feel scared. And actually, what bravery yeah. is, is doing something even though you're scared. If you're doing something and it, it's not scary, then you're not brave for doing it. Um, so literally, being brave and being scared go hand in hand. And I, when I realised that, I, I sort of was able to give myself permission to be scared, to feel afraid, to feel those very strong physical sensations of wanting to run away, having a racing heart, shaking even. And, um, and knowing that by doing the thing anyway, I was being brave. And when we're brave and we survive, our confidence grows. So I really do think that, um, taking action comes first, being courage comes before confidence. Um, And one thing, when I was researching my book, The Confidence Solution, one thing that I remember thinking and realizing was, you know, I found examples, people like Michelle Obama, people like Adele, the singer who has talked about how she would projectile vomit before her performances and get really really scared and there's a woman called Mel Robbins who's a big motivational speaker in America and she did this TED talk in 2011 and you watch the TED talk and she seems totally fine and confident and normal and she talked about it later and said I was having a panic attack you know during this TED talk basically and it made me realize we, we assume that everyone else is confident and we are not we assume that other people have it all figured out and, and we're the ones that don't. And actually, what looks like confidence in other people is actually quite often courage. We're seeing them being brave. We're seeing them looking confident, but, but internally they may be afraid. And that gave me a lot of permission and a lot of this realisation that I didn't need to wait to try and feel confident. I didn't need to tell myself that only confident people can do that to actually just get started and, and give things a try and take it step by step and, and trust that my confidence would grow as I took action. And I think that's really, really meaningful as well because it helps us to do things with permission and being scared. I mean, I think a, a really old title is obviously um, feel the fear and do it anyway. So it's that kind of these, these cliches or um, mantras that have been around for a long time are there before a reason. They capture our universal experience that we all are scared at times. The world can feel threatening. The world can feel anxiety-provoking. And how do we then step out of our comfort zone in a way that is kind to ourselves, but also doesn't allow us to sit in the avoidance because then your world shrinks. And that's sort of a summarizing what you've talked about so far, that actually, yes, your confidence will come from taking action, courageous action, in line with what you want to have in your life, in traveling in that direction that you talked about, you know, getting clarity on what you want and then taking those first steps. And I wonder, you know, from your book, The Confidence Solution, and you've also written another fantastic book called The Anxiety Solution, there's obviously a theme here that these are providing answers to people looking for support with uh, the anxiety and, and confidence issues. I wonder, 
when you did the research for that, you know, what strikes me in the beginning of the book is also how much of these limiting beliefs come from how we as women have been socialized to hold ourselves back, to make ourselves small, that our bodies should be thinner and smaller, we shouldn't take up space. I wonder, can you expand a bit more on what you wrote there about the research you found and on how women versus men and their male counterparts are so different in our confidence? Yeah, well, definitely, you know, all the things that you you mentioned there about the media and how, you know, the way that we look is, you know, portrayed as being the most important thing. But I think also this aspect of the way that we're raised from an early age as women to be the nurturer, to be the one that is taking care of others, that puts other people first, that is selfless. And there was something that I mentioned in the book about, I think it's called skinned knee theory, where, and I really experienced this in my life, where girls are more likely to be overprotected than boys. So if a little boy falls over and hurts his knee, and this is obviously a generalisation, not the same for everyone, but he's more likely to be told, oh, you know, you're all right, dust yourself off and get back up that tree. Whereas little girls, and this is really the case for me, are more likely to be wrapped in cotton wool. And I know, I remember my mum, like, I'm sure if I hurt myself now, she'd still try to scoot me onto her knee and kind of coo to me and, and call me her baby or something. But, you know, if as, as girls, we're, we're kind of overprotected, that we don't learn that we can cope with challenges. We don't learn that if you fall over, it's okay. We're, we kind of sent all these messages that you need to be perfect that you need to be looked after, that you need to put other people first. And so it's really no wonder that we grow up with less confidence and being people pleasers, you know, needing to put other people first and feeling as though we can't trust ourselves um, perhaps as much as, as, as men can. So yeah, there's a lot of things in the way we're raised that, that explain the higher rates of things like perfectionism and people pleasing and anxiety in women compared with men. And there was a really interesting statistic in the book where you talk about how how much women feel they need to be confident or know about something before they, they put themselves forward compared to male counterparts. Do you want to mention something about that as well? Yeah, it's quite a quite a often quoted study, I think, that um, men will apply for a job when they feel like they, they meet, I think it's 70% of the criteria for the job. Whereas women feel like they have to meet 100% or like 120% of the criteria before they will even apply for the job. So perhaps we as women are, are kind of, you know, doing ourselves a disservice, whereas maybe men are a little bit overconfident. And that can mean that we, you know, we're on the back foot in terms of, of jobs and what we're applying for. Yeah, I find that really fascinating as well, because it does, it just kind of explains that it's not only the pressures that we might put on ourselves, individual or internalized pressure, but it's also the external pressure that, you know, the things that are existing in our societal roles, you know, how we've been shaped by our upbringing, the gender norms. So it's a lot here, a lot of complexity, and then the relationship between the two. So obviously we internalize the pressures we have around ourselves, that good girl narrative or you know, must put others first. And and you mentioned perfectionism as well, you know, that need to be perfect rather than, you know, a good enough level of fitting the bill for a job. I have to perfectly fit the bill for the job to apply for it. And in the book, you talk about, you know, the kind of shattering the kind of illusion of perfectionism. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I think, you know, perfection is very seductive. It's very, you know, there's something I notice my my brain getting kind of hooked into, you know, if only think this was this way, then it would be perfect or trying to overthink things to find that one perfect answer or one perfect, I talk about this in the book, you know, trying to find that one perfect pair of jeans. Like if I just find that, that perfect pair of jeans, you know, my life would be so much better. And I think perfectionism can show up in so many different ways. I think sometimes we will associate it with someone that has a really neat, tidy desk or has all their books kind of colour-coded, but it can show up in lots of different ways. The way we look, it can show up in, you know, rereading an email 10 times. It can show up in thinking that we need to appear perfect to other people to somehow control their, their perception of us. And yet the reality is that if you're human, you know, perfection is not an achievable thing. We are messy. We are flawed. We're, we're imperfect. Life is imperfect and we're, we're basically chasing something that is impossible. And the way I try to reframe it for myself and for other people is that, you know, if we can embrace things as they are, 
then they start to feel perfect. They start to feel the feeling that we think we're going to get when we when we get to perfection, which is feeling satisfied, feeling secure, feeling good about you know that situation. So, you know, I try to ask people to focus on embracing things as they are, embracing the mess, embracing the imperfections, and making the most of what we have rather than trying to trying to reach something that is unattainable anyway. Yeah, and I think that's really a powerful permission as well because it means you're much more likely to take action rather than waiting and waiting for everything to be perfect. And you may not recall this, but it was very powerful for me in one of our coaching sessions when I was sort of talking about creating my my course, A Compassionate Couple, and you know how to create the modules and recording the videos. And you asked me, what would it look like if it was easy? And it was such a mind-blowing question. So obviously, mm-hmm. like coaching questions often are, they're meant to make you think. And I've really held that in mind of how do I make this easier for myself? And often the answer to that and what I actually, what actions I took um, when I kind of noticed the, the limiting beliefs and noticed the, the things showing up, pulling me away from just getting something easy down. I was like, no, that won't look good enough or people will think it's not professional. I just kept coming back to that. Well, actually, what would it look like if it was easy? Well, I would have more effort to, to use on other things. I would have energy. I would feel like it wouldn't be a resentful kind of project. I would just, I would feel fulfilled by it rather than depleted by it. So I think sometimes we're just checking in with ourselves, like you often do with me in coaching, of how we can get to the place we want to be, but not drowning in the process. It's really, really powerful. So those kind of embracing imperfections and embracing the mess, like you mentioned, I think is really important because that means we can take action. And if you're daring to be a bit vulnerable here now, what kind of imperfections have you had to embrace in yourself to get to where you are? Yeah, well, one thing I, I noticed, it actually showed up for me recently, was this belief or this notion that I, I need to be, I should be good at something straight away. It's like going to a dance class or I was, I was trying to use my boyfriend's dad's printer the other day and getting kind of frustrated thinking, you know, I should know how to use this. Why, why is it not easy to use? Like I should somehow know this. But really, you know, actually the reality is it's okay to not understand a new piece of you know, technology or a printer, notoriously, they are, they are difficult and confusing. But I noticed that kind of showing up for me. And I have to remind myself, actually, it's okay to be a beginner at something. It's okay to make mistakes in the beginning. You're not supposed to be good at the dance class that you've never been to before. You've never been to a dance class. Of course, you're not going to be good at it. You know, people that are professional dancers have been doing that since an early age. So I think it's giving myself permission to be a beginner at things that's definitely a big one for me and that shows up in in my work and knowing that I think so much of of when you're working for yourself and you're in business it's there's aspects of trial and error there's aspects of things not turning out the way you expected one of my coaches said that he said something like five out of every six times you know I try something it fails and that's actually really normal and um, it's what we can learn from that and what we can do next not giving up using that as as interesting information that we can use to to help ourselves to get better so yeah really trying to reframe a lot of those things for myself has been has been interesting but it's an ongoing process it's ongoing ongoing like most things to do with personal development we don't do it just once and then we're done (laughs) but I love how that narrative is being challenged more and more in society you know that's why we have um, podcasts like How to Fail with Elizabeth Day and you know people talking openly about how mistakes and failure has taught them a lot and mm. how there's been really valuable um, personal growth coming from sitting with your mistakes and your failures and embracing the mess and the imperfections and I mean you look at things like inventions in the past how many times did the inventors try something before they came to the, the solution or the project or the product that we see today I mean obviously hundreds or thousands of times sometimes so something's there about persistence and if we don't give ourselves that permission to be a beginner I mean in my work with perfectionists I see people giving up they don't Mm a start and b they give up when it's not easy and I you know I had that feeling uh same feeling you talked about with the printer when I when I scanned a QR code the other week for the first time and actually understood it takes you to a website (laughs) I was like how did I not know this by age 37, what QR codes actually do. I've been seeing them and these sort of black squares taunting me, but you know, it's okay. You know, we can't know everything and, you know, we have to be out, you know, be okay to be outside of our comfort zone. So in your work, it sounds like you practice a lot of the things that you preach. So you allow yourself the permission 
that you give to people on your courses and your workshops and in your books. And I think I'm wondering sort of what things you've learned around switching off, because obviously this podcast is called Pause, Purpose, Play. What things have you learned along the lines of pausing, slowing down, because you've been so aware of your anxiety in the past? Has that been sort of feeding into your choices you've made for how you work and how you live in in the present moment around your pace of life? Absolutely. I think one of the big things that helped me when I was yeah, struggling with anxiety and helped me to get to a better place was putting peace of mind as my priority. And I know that's, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to do that. I don't have kids yet. I've got the the, the work and the financial ability to be able to do that. And that's a privilege to be able to do that. But for me, putting my mental health as the number one priority was the thing that I, I kind of had to do. And if I don't do that, my my body will show me very clearly, you know, anxiety will start to creep in again. Or I'll start to be more irritable with my partner and I get a very strong signal to come back to, you know, pausing more, looking after myself more, getting more sleep, taking time off. And, you know, there is an aspect of it that I I struggle with. I think when you love what you do and it's exciting to be able to create things and help people and do lots of things on social media, it can be tempting to just work and work and work. So I have to to keep an eye on that and to keep listening to my body and, and checking in with myself. And and now it's become just a habit to, you know, do do my meditation. I do transcendental meditation in the mornings and the evenings. It's like a bookend to my work day. And that's a non-negotiable thing that I'll do on the weekends, on holidays, on Christmas Day. It's just in my in my routine completely. And um, then I might do extra things as and when you know, if things are getting busier at work or if things are going on in my life that I need need to take care of myself more. But I would say the the, the meditation is a, a big cornerstone of, of how I sort of, someone described it once as being like taking a shower for your brain where you're just washing away the stresses of the day. And that's what I, what I like to do um, twice a day. Yeah. And I love that that's a non-negotiable, that's kind of a boundary you set with yourself of bookending the day is also like I'm actually able to support myself I start the day with the right intention and ending the day washing away you know all the stresses of the day so there's something you said in one of the videos of on your course the calm your karma self which really sat with me and I've mentioned it on a, on a previous podcast with um Shah Marshall Dina who's written books around mindfulness so mindfulness for dummies for instance and um, we talked a lot about mindfulness and meditation. So for anyone who's interested in diving deeper into that, then can obviously go to that episode. But I really wanted to remind you of this powerful thing you said around how so often people tell you that they don't have the time to meditate. And that, you know, it's something that you used to be hooked by as well. And I've been absolutely hooked by that. I don't have time to slow down. I don't have time to to do mindfulness. And you said, do you have the time to feel like shit? I think it's just a really powerful way of looking at it. Do we have the time to feel frazzled, overwhelmed, exhausted, depleted, shattered, irritable, um, non-productive? Do we have the time for that? So I really wanted to hear, how did you come to that realisation? Do you have the time to feel like shit? Yeah, I don't know where that quote came from. You know, it's one of those quotes that's probably attributed to like the Buddha or something on one of those quote websites. But um, <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember coming across it and and learning about how much more effectively our brains function when we're calm and focused compared to when we're anxious. You know, when we're anxious, the amygdala is in control and it's it's causing us to think about things in black and white so things are all more likely to be all or nothing black and white thinking that's that's not very helpful and when we're calm we're we're present we're more able to get into flow states we're more able to access our creativity and our ability to solve problems and make decisions and so it, I, I really think of it as being an investment in yeah an investment of time that gives us more time that gives us more value than than that extra 20 minutes you know working or doing something else so I think of it as an investment definitely yeah so something you're choosing to do willingly and knowing that it will have a payoff you will for a lot of people we obviously we've seen this in research that everyone from top athletes to brain surgeons um, actually use this as a way to be more focused in their attention be more productive so if we're thinking of ambitious women career women for instance who feel you know they want to perform 
actually, this is an investment in improving your performance. But it's not just that's the only reason why we do it. It's also because we deserve to be well. We deserve to loosen up our anxiety and release some of that. So I wonder sort of, it's a final question about anxiety that how do we do this? How do we calm this anxiety in a world that is so full of threat? And especially after the last year we've had with the pandemic, how do we calm anxiety when the world is full of threat? I suppose there's so many things we can do. And I think a big part of it has got to be us figuring out what is our own toolkit. What are the things that help us to feel comforted, safe, um, relaxed? And it's going to be different for everyone. But I think a lot of anxiety is so physical. It's so such a physical you know, manifestation. And I think a lot of us will do things like maybe meditation or we'll you know, maybe we'll journal or we'll talk about what we're thinking. But unless we address things at the physical level, there may still be, you know, something in the body that's, um, you know, our nervous system reacting to, to certain situations. So finding a way to discharge the physical tension, whether that is, I mean, I love shaking. I shake every morning when I'm brushing my teeth. I'll shake my whole body for like the two minutes that I'm brushing my teeth. Shaking is something that animals do in the wild to discharge the tension and stress after they've been through something stressful. Um, Everyone has seen their dog or their cat shaking after they've heard a loud noise or if they've had a bit of a fright. So doing something physical, exercise is a must, I think, if you're experiencing any kind of anxiety to, to calm the nervous system down, to burn off the adrenaline. Yeah, so that's the first thing, the physical aspect, and then and then finding ways to address the mental, the mental side of things. So whether that's having therapy, talking about things, writing down your thoughts, having a meditation practice, challenging your thoughts, you know, finding the evidence that actually that that negative thought that you've been having isn't actually true and actually there's another perspective on it. But yeah, I would encourage people just to try different things and see what works for you and then and then find a toolkit that you can use in your day-to-day life to to tackle anxiety. There's a lot of things we can do to reframe and stand back from these things um, taking over our body and our mind. And, and the shaking is so powerful. When, when I learned about that on your course, I tried it with couples in the therapy room who were obviously getting heated and into kind of a distressing states. And it was really powerful. I mean, if nothing mm-hmm. else, because it looks really silly to watch your partner stand there and shake it out of it. Uh, so it kind of diffused any, uh, any tension and we can then get back into the meaning of that conversation. What was it actually that was important here to com- communicate and what do you need to say to be sort of seen and heard in a way that it's much harder when we're in our threat system, when we're overwhelmed by anxiety. Uh, nothing really good comes of that. So mm-hmm. finding a way to calm it and soothe it through those toolkits that you'd mentioned. And I wonder, one of the things you talk about in, you know, as, as part of that toolkit is re- rebooting, you know, some of these beliefs that we have, you know, the beliefs that feed the confidence issues. How do we reboot them? What does that mean? Well, I suppose the first step would be getting to recognise what our beliefs are. And there's something interesting that I've been doing with people recently is um, say someone's got a goal around something to get them to say the goal out loud. And then just to notice what is the automatic thought that you have when you say that goal out loud. And that can often give us a clue to what what are some of those beliefs that may be holding us back from, from getting to where we want to. So you might have a goal and the automatic thought might be, but if I do that, other people might laugh at me or I'm not good enough to do that. So once we kind of establish and, and get to understand what those you know, automatic negative beliefs are, then we can start to change them. So I suppose one thing I'm doing often in hypnotherapy with people is to get to the root of where those things come from. So it might be that you've got this belief of not being good enough that got instilled because your you know your dad was always really critical of you and we might do some work around helping you to realize that you know your dad only said those things because he was really struggling with this or he he had something from his childhood that was going on and it wasn't really about you so kind of reframing where things come from at the root can be really really helpful um so that's the first kind of step identifying the beliefs and and starting to reframe them and then can we start to write a new kind of script for ourselves can we start to tell ourselves a new story so whether that's thinking about what we'd like to believe instead so I am good enough and then thinking about what is the evidence that that is actually true 
And there's always, you know, it might just be tiny little examples that we can find that's just adding to that weight of evidence that actually, you know, we are good enough. And we can start to, with enough repetition and reminding ourselves of that, start to change and shift that belief. Yeah, so the repetition is really key there. I Mm -hmm. guess it's that chipping away of um, and forming new neural pathways in your brain obviously takes time. This is why any kind of therapeutic um, intervention like talking therapies aren't done in one session, Mm -hmm. regardless of our underpinnings. So I'm not trained in hypnotherapy. So I've got a different kind of underpinning to you, but we we see very similar people. And I guess we'd be on the same page on it takes time to shift Mm -hmm. things that have been with you for perhaps decades. So going easy on yourself, being kind to yourself, and not expecting these things to just shift in a heartbeat. That Actually, this is a slow and gradual process that we want to make, keep making progress with. So it's been really, really powerful to hear your insights and what you've learned as you've been researching your books. And again, I want to mention them again so people can go and find them. It's The Anxiety Solution and The Confidence Solution are fantastic titles that are easy to read, accessible, full of good stats and things that underpin what you're saying so you didn't just make this stuff up. And I think that's really helpful when people are trying to understand how to come to terms with their anxiety, that it's not your fault. You didn't, you know, you wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy. So being kinder to yourself and talking to yourself like you would talk to a friend. So it's been really powerful to get your insights on that. And I want to just wrap things up a little bit with thinking of how we then move from pausing into purpose and play. You mentioned that, you know, when you are in a more relaxed state that you are you know kind of entering a flow state more creative what do you then do when you've kind of done your transcendental meditation how do you move into starting work for the day that you know your passion projects and the purposeful things you do for a living how do you move from the slowing down the pausing into your purpose once we get ourselves into a calmer state once we calm our nervous system down then then we create space then we create an ability to be able to give ourselves the breathing space to connect to what's important to us and to remind ourselves of, you know, what is what is fun, what is joyful, what is playful. And I think it's so easy to get really caught up in all the things that we have to do, feeling like we need to be productive all the time. And, you know, I have to check in with myself sometimes and just think, you know, what is what is really important to me? What is what do I want my life to be about? You know, what's what are my values? And coming back to you know the idea of having fun and taking time off and doing things that I really enjoy so yeah I think I think I have to remind myself of that and I think it's so helpful listening to podcasts like this that can remind us to check in with ourselves and, and connect back to that thank you so much for that so it sounds like that follows really nicely into sort of a one sentence little takeaway for the listeners either a pressure you want to take off them or a permission you want to give them what would that be so I guess what I said earlier about, about making peace of mind your priority, you know, can you give yourself permission to do that? Because everyone in your life is going to benefit from you being in a better mental space. Your work is going to get better, your relationships, you know, your happiness will improve when you, when you really take care of yourself. So, so make that the priority. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Chloe. I will let you go and carry on with all the purposeful work you're doing. And I will mention in a minute where the people can find you for all your fantastic workshops, courses, and books, and your website. So thank you so much for being a guest on the on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, dear listeners, for listening to the end of this episode around moving from anxiety into confidence with someone who's been inspirational for me in my own work and who's helped me move more from anxiety into confidence in my role as a psychologist and the way I show up in the world. So this podcast, my book release, the way I show up on Instagram, a lot of that has been thanks to the things that Chloe has given me wisdom around and permission to do. That it's okay to make it easy for yourself. It's okay to be kind to yourself. It's okay to be a beginner at things that you don't know. That we look for support, we find the solutions to the problems and we keep chipping away at it. So because I had to let Chloe go quite quickly, we realized we were running out of time. I wanted to just mention also where you can find Chloe. So her website is karma-u.com. And if you want to follow her on social media, you can find her under the handle Chloe Brotheridge. The course I mentioned is Your Karma Self, and she has a few intakes per year. So if you look on her website, 
You can read more information about the courses or any workshops and memberships she's got coming up. And also have a look at her two books, The Anxiety Solution and The Confidence Solution. Uh, The Confidence Solution was previously known as Brave New Girl. So if you find that title, they are the same book, just a re-release of with a new title. If you've listened to the end and you're thinking, yes, I need some help with calming this overwhelming anxiety, the thing that makes me feel frazzled and standing back in the way of living a more meaningful life, then don't forget that you can download my resource, Calm the Overwhelm, by going to thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. It's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm and just pop in your name and your email address and you can download this worksheet straight away. It will guide you through three aspects of it. One is the sort of physical and and mental signs of overwhelm in your life, where you might be feeling anxious, but it might be a lot more subtle than that. It might be that, like me, at times you're overworking or overdoing things that don't need to be overdone. You may not feel physically anxious just yet. And it might also be that you need some help with finding a break, what you can do to slow down, to take some of that overwhelm off. So that's the second part of the worksheet of giving you some tips of quick and easy things you can do to slow down and calm down. And then it wouldn't be a complete worksheet if it didn't also have some of the things that show up as limiting beliefs. So like Chloe talked about, the things that block you from taking these actions, from giving yourself a break. It might be some of the things your inner critical voice says to you and hooks you away from taking a break and looking after yourself. So go to the website and download your worksheet now. And as always, do please take care of yourself. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. And you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, This episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.